0: Chapter 3, Part 3 of Pioneer Work in Opening the Medical Profession to Women by Elizabeth Blackwell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3, Part 3. Study in America, 1847-1849. to 1849. As the term drew to its end, there was regret at parting from friends I had made, and also anxiety from the uncertainties that still attended my future course. These feelings are expressed in my journal. January twenty first. I felt sad when the lectures actually closed. I received a curious, friendly letter from one of the students requesting the honor of an occasional correspondence. It cheered me, funny as it was. Another student told me he had a daguerreotype room and asked me to sit for my likeness tomorrow. But I told him it had annoyed me so much to see my name in the papers that I certainly could not give my face to footnote. I was then very shy and much annoyed by such public notices as the following. A very notable event of the year 1848 was the appearance at the medical lectures of a young woman student named Blackwell. She is a pretty little specimen of the feminine gender, said the Boston Medical Journal, reporting her age at 26. She comes into the class with great composure, takes off her bonnet, and puts it under the seat, exposing a fine phrenology. The effect on the class has been good, and great decorum is observed while she is present. The sprightly Baltimore Sun remarked that she should confine her practice, when admitted, to diseases of the heart." Springfield Republican. End footnote. He said he had thought of graduating in August, but now he was glad he had not, as I intended returning to Geneva, too funny. January 24th. Went to Dr. Hadley for my certificate and attended the examinations. I suppose they were as thorough as most, but they were certainly not much of a test. Most of the students answered very well, but some very badly. Miss Waller gave me an oyster supper, and we had a very pleasant time. Mrs. Wilson convulsed us by an account of how she was actually struck down by the sudden braying of a jackass, which she heard for the first time during a visit to the North, she never having heard the bray before. January 25th. Attended commencement, or ceremony of graduation, which, after all, was not so very formidable. When I went to wish Dr. Hadley goodbye, I found the whole faculty assembled and very merry at breaking up. They talked over my affairs, but gave me no important advice. To my great disappointment, no letters of introduction were prepared for me, but only a promise given that they should be sent on at once. I was very sad at parting from the Wallers, but had a pleasant chat with the students whom I found in the railroad cars. Passing through New York, where I dined with my kind preceptor, Dr. S. H. Dixon, and his wife, then living in the town, I returned to Philadelphia to try and arrange for summer study. Whilst seeking medical opportunities, I again stayed in Dr. Elder's family and endeavored to increase my slender finances by disposing of some stories I had written and by obtaining music pupils. Knowing very little of practical medicine, I finally decided to spend the summer, if possible, studying in the hospital wards of the great Blockley Almshouse of Philadelphia. This enormous institution promised a fine field of observation. I obtained a letter of introduction to Mr. Gilpin, one of the directors of the Almshouse. He received me most kindly, but informed me that the institution was so dominated by party feeling that if he, as a Whig, should bring forward my application for admission— It would be inevitably opposed by the other two parties, viz., the Democrats and the Native Americans. He said that my only chance of admission lay in securing the support of each of those parties without referring in any way to the other rival parties. I accordingly undertook my sole act of lobbying. I interviewed each political leader with favorable results and then sent in my petition to the first board meeting when, lo, a unique scene took place. All were prepared to fight in my behalf, but there was no one to fight. I was unanimously admitted to reside in the hospital. This unanimity, I was afterwards assured, was quite without precedent in the records of the institution. On entering the Blockley Almshouse, a large room on the third floor had been appropriated to my use. It was in the woman's syphilitic department, the most unruly part of the institution. It was thought that my residence there might act as a check on the very disorderly inmates. My presence was a mystery to these poor creatures. I used to hear stealthy steps approach and pause at my door, evidently curious to know what I was about. So I placed my table with the books and papers on which I was engaged directly in a line with the keyhole and there I worked in view of any who chose to investigate the proceedings of the mysterious stranger. The following home letter gives a glimpse of the Blockley life. August. Dear Mother, Do not fear for me. I go on smoothly and healthily at Blockley. There is really nothing pestilential among the diseases, and I live simply do my duty, trust in God, and mock at the devil. The matron is the only lady in the establishment, present company excepted, and I frequently step in to see her. She wears a nice white cap, has smooth gray hair, and soft dove's eyes like yours, and I sometimes look at her and think of you till her voice breaks forth in fierce scolding, and then I think of Mrs. Beelzebub. She sits in an immense room in the center of the almshouse proper, and ensconced in her armchair, with feet propped on a velvet footstool, she dispenses orders from morning to night, gives out clothing, raves at the paupers, and dooms the refractory ones to a shower-bath. She is a Quaker, very pious, I believe, attends yearly meeting regularly, and has an Episcopal minister for her only son. She is one of the strong-minded women, and manages matters to the entire satisfaction of the committee. I like to talk with her occasionally, for she is shrewd and has seen much of life through dark spectacles." What a contrast she is to our head physician. When I first saw Dr. Benedict, I thought him the very loveliest man the Almighty ever created, and I still preserve my opinion. The tears come into his eyes as he bends down to soothe some dying woman, and his voice is as gentle, his touch as kind to each patient as if she were his sister. Then he is as truthful, energetic, and spirited as he is kind. So, of course, we are very good friends, though we don't see much of each other. I often send a thought to Cincinnati as I roam through the wards and imagine our contrasted employments. All letters unite in calling you the best, the most cheerful, most indefatigable mother that ever did exist. All her daughters praise her, and her sons call her blessed. How I wish you could pay me another visit this summer. Well, dear mother, heaven bless you. Write to me sometime. Your loving physician, E. At that time, and for many years after, The subject which those wards where I lived represented was an unknown problem to me. I was strangely ignorant of the extent and meaning of that phase of our human society which represents the selfish relations of men and women. This semi-blindness, however, proved a real safeguard to me through the many unusual experiences of my subsequent life. It was not until 1869, when attending the Social Science Congress in Bristol, that my mind at last fully comprehended the hideousness of modern fornication. But my residence at Blockley prepared my mind to some extent for later revelations, as is shown by entries in my journal. June twenty-second, I had a long talk with Nurse Welch on the patients in her departments, which impressed me deeply. Most of the women are unmarried— A large proportion having lived at service and been seduced by their masters, though on the whole about as many seducers are unmarried as married. I found no instance of a married woman living with her husband entering. This morning one young woman tried to escape from Blockley by tying sheets together and fastening them outside the window bars but they giving way, she fell down from the third story and was picked up suffering from concussion of the brain and other injuries. All this is horrible. Women must really open their eyes to it. I am convinced that they must regulate this matter. But how? August 17th. Drank tea with the matron and had a very pleasant time. She excites me, and I influence her. She actually apologized to me for her rough and tyrannical treatment of one of the women. August 19th. A beautiful thaw came to me this lovely morning. Emerson says, Our faith comes to us in moments. Our vice is habitual. I never till now could explain this to my satisfaction. It is that the atmosphere of our society, of our daily surroundings, is false. It attracts the demons, they encompass us continually, for we live in their home. The angels have to strive to come to us. But when, by a holy inspiration or an effort of man's nobler nature, he rises to a purer sphere, Then the angels throng lovingly round him. He breathes the divine life. But the moment this effort is relaxed, he, not living in a heavenly atmosphere, naturally and inevitably sinks again into hell because his present home is there, for he cannot separate himself from the race. Not till the race is redeemed will our habitual state be heavenly, and the true spontaneous divine life be possible. This is the philosophy of effort. The solidarity of our race asserts the impossibility of present permanent divine life. Bless God for our deep momentary experiences, our prophetic assurances. This sweet morning refreshes me inexpressibly. The wind that lifts my hair seems filled with angel hands that soothe the soul to peace. That little warbling bird fills me with holy joy. A glory seems to rest everywhere, a tide from the divine nature. During my residence at Blockley, The medical head of the hospital, Dr. Benedict, was most kind and gave me every facility in his power. I had free entry to all the women's wards and was soon on good terms with the nurses. But the young resident physicians, unlike their chief, were not friendly. When I walked into the wards, they walked out. They ceased to write the diagnosis and treatment of patients on the card at the head of each bed, which had hitherto been the custom, thus throwing me entirely on my own resources for clinical study. During the summer of eighteen forty eight, the famine fever was raging in Ireland. Multitudes of emigrants were attacked with fever whilst crossing the ocean and so many were brought to Blockley that it was difficult to provide accommodation for them, many being laid on beds on the floor. But this terrible epidemic furnished an impressive object lesson, and I chose this form of typhus as the subject of my graduation thesis, studying in the midst of the poor dying sufferers who crowded the hospital wards. I read my thesis to Dr. Elder and was greatly encouraged by his hearty approbation. Trying as my painful residence at Blockley had been both to body and mind, I was conscious of the great gain in medical knowledge and worldly experience which it had afforded. The following journal entry "'expresses the mixed feelings "'with which that strange residence was left. "'September 22nd, my last evening at Blockley. "'Here I sit, writing by my first fire. "'How glad I am. "'Tomorrow, tomorrow I go home to my friends. "'And yet, as I watched the beautiful sunset "'from my great windows,' as little Mary Ann pays her willing attendance, and all seems so friendly. As I walked to Dr. Benedict's with my thesis, and felt the entrancing day and the lovely country, I almost regretted that I was going to leave. Heaven guide me. May good spirits ever surround me. At the end of the summer, I gladly returned to the healthy and hopeful college life at Geneva. Passing through New York, where I saw Dr. Dixon and his family and heard Henry Ward Beecher preach, I reached my winter's home on October 3rd, reported myself at college, met everywhere a kind welcome, and settled down for winter work. The clever demonstrator again afforded me his valuable aid in anatomy, and the friendliness of the class continued. Sometimes, whilst sitting by the doctor during some delicate demonstration of the brain, the students who were crowding round, standing on chairs, leaning on one another's shoulders, kept most respectfully from me drawing back instantly when by accident they touched my head or shoulder. October twenty-sixth, The class held a meeting today to request a holiday on Election Day, and a political division was called for by the assembled students. I went over to the free soil side and was received with repeated cheering. I asked Dr. LaFord, reproachfully, if he was going to vote for the slaveholder, Taylor, whereupon he gave me his reasons for political action and grew quite eloquent in his self-defense. November twelfth, Howie made his appearance today, just as I settled down to perpetrate an essay for the family Christmas annual. How good it is to see a brother. He looked very well, and we had a merry time together. I stayed away from afternoon lectures to be with him. He is a capital companion and greatly improved. I did more laughing than I've done for months. His visit did me real good, for I have been so lonely. Heaven bless the dear boy in his future." Sunday, 19th, alone all day in my room, yet anything but lonely. Bright visions of usefulness have been floating round me. I consecrated myself anew to the accomplishment of a great idea. I tried to lecture for an hour to an imaginary audience, striving to prepare for work by seeking expression for my thoughts. I would I were not so exclusively a doer. Speech seems essential to the reformer, but mine is at present a very stammering, childish utterance. 26. Went to church. Mr. Hogarth said some true things. He drew our thoughts to the reformers of old with their sublime trust in the Most High. What a strange feeling of pleasure I claimed kindred with Asa, king of Judah, who broke the idols of the people and overcame the hosts of the Ethiopians. November 30th. Our evening lecture broke up in a political hurrah for a Whig orator and John Van Buren were both speaking in the town and the students rushed to attend the political meetings. I again discussed the subject with Dr. LaFord, he justifying himself enthusiastically for being a Whig. He talked well, but I grew tired of these old expediences. By this time, the genuine character of my medical studies was fully established. Had I been at leisure to seek social acquaintance, I might have been cordially welcomed, but my time was anxiously and engrossingly occupied with studies and the approaching examinations. I lived in my room and my college, and the outside world made little impression on me. End of Chapter 3, Part 3